listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, Jeff, we have another guest today, but before we invite him on, I want to see if you'd like to make an investment in my new invention. Sure. Only because I like you. Okay. You ready? So here's my sales pitch. I have invented an AI-driven automated proposal machine. Basically, you can take any RFP and you can scan it in, scan it into the system, and it will spit out a proposal in five minutes or less. I like that. (laughs) You want to go buy one? Yeah. Yeah. When's Terrible it going to be ready? When's it going to be right. ready? So we're going to be ready? <laughs> Hopefully never. So our topic today is why RFPs suck. They do and suck. Until someone invents a you know AI-driven automated proposal machine, and even if they did, I think that's a bad idea. We actually have with us today Cal Harrison of Beyond Referrals to talk to us about <laughs> why RFPs suck and what we should do about it. So Kyle, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you and Beyond Referrals, and then we'll jump into this fun topic that you know we can't automate away quite yet. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thanks for having me on. So I'm a Canadian who grew up in the middle of Canada. <laughs> My first career was in the art department of an ad agency, and that's where I was introduced to the RFP process. Someone else would write it. My job was to pretty it up throw some case studies and some pictures in it. Of course, that was a long time ago before computers, so it wasn't a real easy process. And I remember finding it interesting that, you know, if I was working on a proposal, responding to an RFP in the morning, we were we might be agriculture experts. And then two hours later, we were communication <laughs> experts. And two hours after that, you know, we were retail experts. And it just, we were whatever the proposal was looking for. So I started in the art department of an ad agency. I have a degree in English and a diploma in advertising art, which means I was a graphic designer by trade. At some point, I left the art department, crossed the hallway, became a suit, got an MBA along the way, worked for government for eight years, issuing RFPs in part for professional services, primarily communications related. 21 years ago, I started Beyond Referrals, which is a consulting firm designed to help the professional services community do a better job of selling their services. So what you find out pretty quickly is if the buyers do a bad job of buying, it's hard to do a good job of selling. So along with Beyond Referrals, I've got this other passion project. You know, Beyond Referrals pays the bills, but QBS Canada is my passion project, an advocacy group that tries to sew together professional associations to lobby as a group. I shouldn't say lobby. There are legal implications to that word, I think, to advocate on behalf of professional services firms of all stripes. So architecture, engineering, law, accounting, IT, and of course, the ad agencies and communications firms to try and get the attention of the professional procurement community and suggest to them that maybe there's a better way than the price-based RFP to hire experts. So that was a really long discussion (laughs) in response to a brief question, but thank you for that opportunity. Well, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about how as an agency owner, you know, I get these, I don't get them too much anymore, but we're in systems somewhere and someone will spit out an RFP. We want you to respond to X, Y, Z, whatever. And I ignore them, hit delete. I never pay attention. What's funny is occasionally they come back again, kind of like, hey, no one's really responded to this. Could, could you really take it some time to respond? And I'm thinking like, yeah. maybe you've got a problem with your process. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to respond to what you're asking to buy. Yeah. So anyway, RFPs suck. I think we should just start with that. Like, you know, 
I think we all have opinions on why they suck. Why do they really suck? What's really broken here? Well, you know, I get the idea of a structured procurement process, especially if you're in government and you're you're literally using other people's money to buy things. Like government has to buy things, and I get that they need to be responsible with that. But we've come to confuse price with value, right? And it's, you know, the procurement people that I deal with, and I deal with a lot, they don't like the RFP either, usually, because they see the limitations, but they feel trapped in a political system or a process that forces them to use it. So I try and show them ways out of it. But so number one, it's a time sink. It's it, it, it's a very inefficient way to select something. Two, it's a very inaccurate way to select something. Because remember, we're they're buying an intangible. It's expertise. But we often get sidetracked and focus on hours and dollars per hour. So are you buying hours or are you buying expertise? An RFP for a commodity, product, or service is fine by me, right? If you can define all the variables and the only remaining variable that can be changed or impacted by a vendor is price, great. Like if you're buying shovels and you need 100 of them and the the delivery date is fixed and they have to be a certain brand or size or caliber or whatever, great. Whoever can deliver them cheapest, I'm absolutely fine with that. The challenge is buying the least expensive expert probably means you're buying the group with the least expertise, right? Yeah. So let, let me give you an example. You want to hire Warren Buffett for an hour? might cost you $20,000. For $20,000, you could buy a fleet of MBA students to work on the project that Warren Buffett could fix in an hour, right? Warren Buffett's unit cost per hour is going to be grossly high. The unit cost per hour for a, you know, a gaggle of MBA students is going to be really low. But who's going to give you the better outcome, right? I just just want to interrupt real quick and say how how much I want a gaggle of MBA students. (laughs) I love that. Anyway, keep going. Sorry. No worries. So it's, it, it gives us the wrong answers and it takes us a lot of time and money to get to that wrong answer. That's what I believe. Jeff, you want to lump anything on top of that? I love it, by the way. It was, it was fabulous. There's so much more to it too, but keep going, Jeff. Okay. So listeners real quick, this, this last section is going to be edited by the editor and you're going to miss it. But Jeff was on mute for a brief moment. This was my favorite moment of podcasting in 120 episodes. It was phenomenal. <laughs> Cal and I were at peace and quiet. It was liberating. It's like I could think for the first time in 118 episodes. Anyway, why else do RFPs suck, Jeff? (laughs) Oh, gosh. You know why I think they suck, given my experience inside professional services firms, is the psychological damage that happens within a firm and in particular, you know, around a go, no go decision, the, the mental gymnastics and the effort that goes into just trying to decide, are you going to propose or are you not? is just painful to watch. I mean, it's really painful. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Cal, but it's really something to see. Yeah. It's a tough thing, especially if you need the work mm, and particularly if you need the work. Yeah. Let's talk about that because I think that that's the question that we should spend some time on is, you know, so this RFP shows up on your desk. It doesn't really matter how it got there. You know, maybe you're the managing partner or you're the practice leader or, or the marketing lead. doesn't matter. What should you do? Like, where, where do you start? What do I do with this RFP? Yeah. So first off, let's back up a second. Most big consulting firms 
have people dedicated to going out and finding RFPs. Oh, yeah. So they recognize that, hey, that's what our environment is. That's what our universe is. We have to play in it. Let's just get as efficient at this inefficient process as we can and try and make good go versus no-go decisions. But there's a lot of discussion, I'll say, about what's a good go versus no-go decision. And I, you know, I framed out my perspective on that. So like the reality is in Canada, for example, if you want to consult on healthcare, that means your client's going to be the government. So you have to play by their rules. Now, QBS Canada has been trying to change those rules. And we've had some good responses. For example, the A&E community has been able to get a pilot project with the federal procurement group to try QBS in that sector, right? And in part because the A&E professions got together with QBS Canada and some other experts, even some out of the states who came up to advise on that. And they're open to new and better ways to hire, right? So on the one hand, you have to play in the universe in which you're in. On the other hand, you can still try and change that universe and we're having some success. I gotta say the procurement community is open to new ways. And now we need to lead them forward. So now, but at the end of the day, we're still playing in the RFP environment. we got to make go versus no go decisions. So how do we do that respectfully? And how do we do that without putting ourselves on the blacklist? Right? So I've got some thoughts about that. And I know, Jeff, you've read that list. Yeah, I, I like the list. I like the list. So you, you have these five questions that firms should be asking and with the first time I read the list, Cal, I went through in my own mind scenarios at firms I've been at where that question has been asked. And it's almost like post-traumatic stress. <laughs> and I recalled it. I mean, I recalled it. And not to make light of, of that, but I recall just the pain that people go through to answer these questions. So take us through the five quickly. And let's talk a little bit about the psychology of the decisions that exist there and where firms can can kind of step away from themselves and make smarter decisions around this go, no-go. Sure. Let's do that. Jeff, can you lead me through the questions? (laughs) Number one, is not responding an option? Right. So there might be times when you're just obligated to respond. A good client calls you up and said, listen, I'm married to this process. I have to do it. Whether you guys win the job or not, I want you to respond. We want you to stay on our, in our sight lines. I know it's, you know, you don't like the process, but can you just join in with us? And it, or even if you choose not to respond, but you feel obligated to, having an open and honest discussion with the person who's issued it, at least you can tell them, look, we're really busy. This isn't a great fit for us. We really want to keep having a relationship with you, but we just can't respond to this, right? It doesn't have to be a militant, RFP suck. (laughs) We're not responding, right? (laughs) As much as we're having fun with that, and it's a great lead in for this podcast, it doesn't have to be that way. Like collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. We're trying to find win-wins for everybody. So sometimes you have to respond. But if it's an option to not respond, then okay. And as you were saying that, Cal, it really is the response to the person issuing the request really is a, I wouldn't call it golden, but it's a great opportunity to kind of solidify brand positioning and the value that you provide. When you just describe, hey, you know, we'd love to respond but this is, this is not where we play best. Where we play best 
is around these issues under these conditions with these types of, of clients. And it's almost like you have this golden opportunity to educate, if you will, and solidify. And, and I don't know about other firms, but to me, when I have an opportunity to, to say something like that around Prudent Pedal, if someone were to send an RFP, we don't respond to our RFPs. We just, it's, it's rare that we would do that. I have a quick, quick, quick question. Do you ever actually get any? Do I actually get any? Yes, I have, but they are rare. Normally when we're contacted, it's sole sourced. Yeah. I want to come back to that topic later, but it, I think it's a relation. You'll love this. So I'm going to bring up your performance envelope, Jeff. But but anyway, let's move on from that. But I think it's interesting. Keep going. Okay. So so I think it, it, and that question is not responding an option that needs to be turned around. And how can you turn that to your advantage? Yeah. Not responding can be an advantage, exactly as you're saying, Jeff, by taking that opportunity to reach out, communicate, and basically it's a positioning exercise then, right? I think it was Izzy Asper, who was a famous Canadian billionaire, who said, uh, I don't mind losing this competition because it gave me the chance to set myself up for the next one, right? So that's exactly what you're describing. I like the fact, before we move on to the next question, that that question even is in the is in the list. Because I think there are firms where they don't even bother to ask that question. Mm-mm. Anything that shows up, the assumption is, well, of course we're going to respond <laughs> because they're, you know, we can't win if we don't respond, you know. And you know, I, I can tell a ton of stories, but I have a good friend, ex you know, client that's a, a marketing director at a, a successful architecture firm. And that was like the first thing he did when he took over the helm. He's like, he's like, we we responded to like, you know, 10% of the amount of RFPs we had been responding to prior. We were just responding to everything. He's like, and it was just consuming all these resources. And it was ridiculous, you know? So anyway, moving on. Sorry. You really do have to pick your spots. The second question is, do we even want the work? Right. So there might be some ethical reasons, like maybe it's for a cigarette retailer, maybe Mm. it's for a casino, maybe it's for, uh, you know, some group that has fundamentally different values than you, or maybe it's going to be too big, or maybe it's going to be too small. There's a whole bunch of reasons why it might not be a good fit. So it's fair to say, like, do we really want that? Do we really want to be associated with that? So, And I think that one, again, from a psychological perspective, is a great question to ask And I think the follow-on question is, do we want the work? And if so, or if not, why? And again, building on what Jason said, most firms don't ask this question, but I think the question is, what are the opportunity costs associated with the work and pursuing the work? Yeah. And you're you're absolutely right. There's another angle to it as well, is it's it's a moment of self-reflection to say, how well positioned are we? How clear are we? What values do we have? And if, you, if your motto is we do work for anybody at any price, just keep the work rolling, then you know it's unlikely you're ever going to say that you don't want any business. But if you're really well positioned and really working hard and moving your margins up by you know getting deeper expertise in a specific type of work for a specific market, then you're probably going to say we don't want this work a lot, right? Yeah, exactly. These next two questions, opposite sides of the same coin, but much consternation around these two in firms as well. And the third one is, can we do the work? Right. And I think the visceral reaction for most people, well, of course it is. That's why they sent us their RFP or we'll figure out a way to do the work. Yeah, I think it's Richard Branson that's got that 
philosophy. He says, listen, if you ever present an opportunity, but you don't know if you can deliver it, accept the opportunity and figure out how to deliver it later. You know, I can see where in some circumstances that might make sense, but I don't know that that's the right philosophy for the RFP environment, right? Because what it means is there are probably people out there who really can do a better job than you. Like you can deliver it at a base level. Like I can play baseball. I just can't play in, uh, you know, major league baseball, right? So it really gives you a chance to say, how are we, how competitive will we be if we do deliver this? Will we embarrass ourselves? Yeah, exactly. You know, just like the first question of taking the opportunity to solidify your brand, there is to a large degree an opportunity to protect your brand with this question. You know, can we do the work? Yes, but can we do the work to this exceptional level that would differentiate our brand and make it stronger? Or do we put it at risk? You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. All right. The fourth one is, <laughs> can we win the work? Of course <laughs> yeah. we can. Yeah. You know what? I, geez, uh, you know, many, many moons ago in the early days of my crib, like we can do this. We could totally do this. And then, but no one ever asked, but you know, can we beat the others in this competition? And part of that is, you know, when you're playing poker and someone at the table is like the rube, the one that's going to get if you can't tell who it is, then it's you. And I think I'll attribute that. I think Blair ends told me that story, you know, the win without pitching guy. And it rings so true. Like if you really don't know who the sucker is at the table, it's probably you. So, <laughs> you know, do a quick look around, like, okay, who's, who are we going to be competing against on this? Would we be top three with them? Cause we got to be number one or two, maybe to have a chance at winning this. If we're three to five, forget it. Like It's not happening. It's funny. I'll tell a quick story. Uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, I, I can tell stories from both sides of the coin on this. I remember, like you said, one of our existing clients, they had an RFP process because they had to, essentially by law, they had to. We've worked with this client for a decade now, right? The, the risk of us losing the account was actually relatively small, I think anyway. Anyway, they have an interview, right? So after you work through the navigation, there's an interview and and, and, and we, we go in for our interview or whatever it is. And I walk out the door and waiting in the lobby is then the next agency that's going to come in and talk to <laughs> And the guy gets up, takes one look at me and he goes, oh, crap. Yeah. Like, they, like, like he, he knew instantly that they weren't going to win this business because I was there, which I thought was really interesting. I was like, oh, wow. It was one of those rare moments where you felt really good about yourself. Like, oh, I guess I'm pretty well respected. But I just thought to myself, man, the, I felt bad for him in a way. He said, how, much, how many resources he'd probably tied up to get to this moment when he realized at this exact moment, he was walking into a room and he had not a zero, almost zero chance of winning this piece of business. And it was like, <laughs> I was like, I've been in his shoes too. So to yeah. your point of like not knowing who's around you is a risk, big, significant risk. It is a very yeah. big one. That's and a great and story. And it's why in the firms that, you know, I've been in and, and at Prudent Pedal as well, my rule of thumb is if I have not shaped the RFP from its origin or have not had an opportunity to reshape it, I'm not going to want to submit 
I'm not, I am not going to want to submit by answering some questions or answering some questions with some answers when I don't even really know the nature of the decision-making criteria around those things or who the players are, or even worse, that it's somebody else has already shaped this thing to their yeah, advantage, right? right? Yes. And, and I'm just there to allow procurement to take their you know pound of flesh and rationalize their existence. And I just find the rule of thumb is if we didn't shape it or reshape it, we shouldn't be proposing. Yeah, if they're seeing you for the first time, if they're hearing of you for the first time, your chances are probably pretty slim, unless they, they're seeing everybody for the first time, right? And that's rare. Yeah. All right, and then the final question, <laughs> and this is one that should be so easy to answer, but it, it doesn't even get asked, and that is, is the value of winning worth the fees of submitting? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So, you know, you can look at the value of that contract alone. You could project out the lifetime value of a customer, you know. So there's a couple of ways you could evaluate it, but it's a metric that should be measured somehow or at least recognized. And it leads me to another brief story. There's a different side to that. There is what I call the industry or community cost of RFPs. So let me give you a quick story. Real client of mine, architecture firm, responds to an RFP. It's a $500,000 construction cost. So it's going to be about 10% of that will be fees for the architecture work and uh, cost them $13,000 of direct costs to write the proposal. So if they retailed that, like if they if someone paid them to write the proposal, they would have sold those services for about $20,000. So you got a $20,000 proposal writing cost with the hope that they might win $50,000 in fees. Now, they're probably extrapolating lifetime value of customer, et cetera, that type of thing. But then I looked at, I went back to the submission portal, uh, 38 firms submitted proposals. 20 grand a pop to write a proposal, 38 firms, that's $760,000 worth of cost that the architecture community incurred so that one of them might get $50,000 worth of fees. Like, you cannot tell me that is a sustainable model right? That means that it's 150% of the total project cost, including construction. So they spent $760,000 to decide which architect to use to build a project that was going to be $500,000 to build and $50,000 to design. That's just crazy. So, and, and here's the other part of it is the, you know, the, the sometimes an uninformed procurement person will say, well, Cal, that's just the cost of doing business. And huh. You know, as my good friend Blair likes to say, that's not the cost of selling. That's the cost of buying because all those costs of writing proposals are part of SGNA in a, in a firm. They all get passed back to the buyer ultimately, right? You start looking at the volume of waste there, it's mind boggling, right? So, what if we got the proposal writing cost down to under five grand? And because of the really focused requirements of the RFP by using a qualification-based selection system instead of an RFP, that we would only get eight proposals, sufficient for competition, but not onerous, and with no ability for someone to lowball, win on price, and then jack up the actual price to the real price using change orders. See, maybe you got five firms at, you know, sorry, what did I say? $5,000, eight firms, $40,000 for a seven, you know, $550,000 project. Okay, I can live with that. Like, we do have to expend some time, energy, and money to have some competition. 
but I think we're, we're really forgetting about the waste that we're creating as a community. And there's an obligation, I think, for the professional services community to speak out about that and inform the procurement people and give the procurement people the language so they can talk to, for example, the politicians who don't ever want to say to their community, their voters, we took the most expensive solution because we think it's the best value. They always want to say we took the, the cheapest solution. We're getting value for money, right? But we've got to help those people communicate those messages. There we go. I just went sideways on you guys. <laughs> no, actually, that that put a fine point on it. So this is what I hear you saying, Cal, is the RFP process is not necessarily broken and doesn't suck, as Jason says it, but the questions or the information that we're requesting does. Yes. Okay. Let me pick up on that. That's brilliant. That's a perfect segue. So we got to have a structured process. I believe in that. But what's the least efficient part of those questions? Give us your price. What's your budget? I can't tell you. That would be unfair. It's not unfair. It's just stupid. So let's just say <laughs> let's just say we took the requirement for pricing out of it. So this is what we're now we're getting into what qualification-based selection is. So QBS has been legislated by the Brooks Act in the United States since I think 1972. Jack Brooks, a senator or governor or something from Texas, I believe, said, look, we shouldn't entrust the creation of our most precious infrastructure, like roads, highways, airports, etc., to the lowest bidder, right? We don't want that. And, it, it, you know, it followed on some catastrophic engineering and architecture failures. So they said, listen, we're not going to use price anymore to select the people who design that critical infrastructure. So what do we do then? Well, I'll tell you what, in some cases, we're going to give them the budget. We're going to say, look, we got $20 million to build this. Tell us why you're the best selection. So now we've taken the price requirement out of the, the proposal submission process. Pricing a project often means you actually have to start figuring out the solution to see how you're going to price it. So now you've got a whole bunch of firms, 38 firms maybe, like in the last example, starting to work on the process just so that they can give an accurate price. And then they got to try and lowball the price, right? And there's no opportunity to say, you know what, if you did it slightly differently, you could save a bunch of money in terms of operating costs, right? So in a QBS process, price comes out of it. It's like, we got a hundred grand or we got $20 million. Tell us why we should select you, right? The focus is on expertise. And then once you've found the most qualified, then you can have a collaborative, collaborative discussion and say, okay, listen, we, you know, we told you the budget's a hundred grand. Give us a more detailed proposal. So at that point, you've got one customer going through all the pricing stuff, and there's an opportunity for collaboration. You know what? If we went left instead of right, your operational costs would be 10% lower for the next 30 years on this piece of infrastructure, right? And then, so what I tell procurement people is, they go, like, this is crazy. We can't do that. I say, you're already doing it, except they're doing it in the HR department. Because if instead of hiring, let's say, a management consultant, no, no, let's say an architect, instead of hiring an, a contract architect through an RFP process, what if you hired a staff architect? Would you ask for resumes and also an indication of how low they would be willing to, how little they would be willing to work for? You would never do that. What you do is you say, tell us why you're the most qualified. And by the way, here's the salary range, 100 to 120 a year, right? You get three piles, the most qualified that you want to interview, those that you absolutely do not want to interview because they don't have the qualifications, and then a middle pile that's maybe it's a maybe pile in case the first pile doesn't work out. But what do you do? You go through them, you pick three to interview, and of those three, you go, you know what? And what's the interview process? It's really stress testing the claims they made about their expertise in their resume. 
Is this real? Tell us about this. What role did you really play in that project? Right. So then you come up with one that is like this one, this person is obviously the best fit for us. And you say, listen, we'd like to offer you $110,000 a year plus three weeks holidays. And here's your benefits. And they go, you know what? I really need 120 grand and I need six weeks holidays. Okay. We can't come to an agreement. Thank you. We're going to move to the second most qualified and see if we can make a deal with them. That's how QBS works, right? So you're always guaranteed the most qualified firm that you can afford. And there's also a little stress on the line for the most qualified firm you picked initially to make sure they're not trying to rob you blind just because they're the most qualified, right? You still have to come up with a fair deal at the end of it. So HR is already using QBS to select people to hire. When you hire those same people as contractors, why don't we use a similar process? So I have two questions and we have to move to wrap here. And and my first question is, who's the onus on? Is the onus on the buyer to have better buying processes or is it on the seller? Is it on the firms to basically grow a little backbone and stand up and say, no, we're not going to do it this way. We're not going to participate in your process. Like, Where do you think the onus lies to make RFPs not suck? Can I, throw, no, a third, no, can I throw a third one in no, there? No, you can't. No, you can't. No. I, I, I think- Let him answer the question. Let him finish well, the question. I want to know what this one is. It's a problem right. ones too. It, it, this requires trust. And- and price becomes a yeah. What's I don't trust of, you to share my budget, right? Yeah. <laughs> a stand-in for quality, but really, it's a lack of distrust on the stakeholders. You know, voters in the government's point of view, shareholders in a corporation's point of view, and then whatever other stakeholders have some kind of interest in the selection process to make sure that this thing was on the up and up to make the right decision. So, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I I think that's a third party that needs to be baked into that. So, uh, yeah, that's an important one, Jeff. Thank you. Let me answer this. Society in general is moving towards a mental state where I might not want to pay by, by the most expensive thing, but I don't want to buy the cheapest one either because I know what I'm getting. I'm getting some knockoff that's made poorly that looks good on the online buying portal. But when I get it, it's just disappointing, right? So it's getting easier for people like politicians to say, you know, we paid for value. We got more value by paying a little bit more. I think we're getting there in general. So the community absolutely has a role to play. That's what I'll call your group, Jeff, the community. So is it the buyers or the sellers? It's hard for the buyers for a couple of reasons. And I'll lump. I used to think this is the role of the professional association. So the professional association needs to step up, move forward and, you know, shine a light on the procurement community. But too often the professional associations are governed by volunteers who are vendors in the community. And what we're asking them to do then is to stand up and take the heat so that their competitors can, you know, have a better procurement process because now they've been blacklisted for, you know, really shining the light on the the, the procurement community. The good news is I, I presented a ton of procurement conferences around North America. And procurement wants to listen. What they really want is the tools to help them make it easier to change their environment as well. They'd rather buy more qualified at a higher price because that's good for everybody because they're taxpayers too, right? They want value out of that. So I think that's part of the reason I created QBS Canada. It's like Cal's the guy at QBS Canada that I'm not competing with RFPs, so I don't care if I wear the heat from the procurement community by shining a light on them, right? I encourage professional associations, if they, if they see something bad going out there, send them my way. 
I will address it directly with that buyer. And I've done that in the past. And most of the time when I call a buyer and say, you know, you've asked for something unethical or there's a better way to do this. And I just want to bring it to your attention. In fact, you're not getting the best vendors responding because of the problems with this RFP. Most of the time they go, really? Okay, well, tell me about that. And usually it'll be, okay, we can't change this one, but we hear what you're saying. We're going to take it forward to our group, et cetera, et cetera. And I've had people, I've actually had people retract RFPs and issue new ones as a result of some of the things I've been saying to them. Now, you've also got groups like the uh, ICA, Institute of Communication Agencies in Toronto, that represents like the marketing communications advertising world in Canada. And they've got like Pitch Watchdog. You know, the unethical pitch, do the work for free, and then we'll pick the color we like the best, right? They'll go to town and they'll issue press releases about people who are doing unethical pitch or unethical RFP requests, right? So the professional association should lead that, but the volunteers within that professional association shouldn't take the heat for it. The ICA has paid staff. It's their job to do that. It's great. So I think the professional associations need to lead this charge. And in some sectors, they're doing a great job. I mean, A&E is way ahead of the game on this. Consulting, not so much. Legal, no. IT, no. So... Sorry, guys. Another long answer. That's all right. He talks and he talks and he talks. Ah, no, no, no. It's good. This is good stuff. So, so Jeff. So, before I get to my final question, do you want to ask a question? No, I'm just messing with you. No, no. Seriously, do you have a, do you have a question? <laughs> I'm not stepping into that. <laughs> well, my question's just a joke. So, so Cal, do you think I should invest in my AI enabled uh, proposal machine? Yes, but you have to become a, you have to acquire a commodity service or product that you're selling through the RFP process so that you can, you know what, then it's just, it's crank them up. It's volume, right? <laughs> but if you're selling expertise, I, how about investing in supporting the QBS movement? How about that? <laughs> that sounds fair. All right, man. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. I learned a lot and I actually had a lot of fun. So thanks for joining us, Cal and Jeff. I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Cal. Guys, thank you. This has been a ton of fun and it's been great hanging out with you in your really, really cool studios for most of an hour. <laughs> See ya. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. 